Hi folks, welcome back for another episode of Bibliology. My name is Patrick and this is the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today I'm excited for you all to hear my conversation with Dr. Karen Reeder, Professor of New Testament and Core Coordinator of Gender Studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. She has written extensively on the New Testament and Second Temple Judaism, and she also has a strong interest in reading the Bible theologically, and that is just what we like on the show, of course. Her most recent book is going to be the topic of conversation for today, entitled The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Church 2. This book challenges the traditional interpretation of this story and also links it in with the current issues of sexual misconduct in the worldwide church. Needless to say, this is not an episode particularly suitable for children, so you may want to wait till they're off to school till you listen to this episode, but I strongly encourage you to do so at some point, as I think there's a lot of benefit to what Karen says, and I also heartily recommend her book, which you can find in the description. Without further ado, let's get on to the show. Hello, Karen. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be in this conversation with you. Yes, um, we're going to be speaking about your uh, recently released book um, about the Samaritan woman reconsidering the story after Church 2. I think I've paraphrased it just a little bit there, but... um, You've got the idea. (laughs) Got the idea, yeah. And of course, um, listeners can find that in the the description and they can... They should buy it because it's a very worthwhile read and greatly appreciate your your work. Thank you um, very much. But um, before we get on to the the the, um, the meat of the conversation, all the the good stuff that you have to say, um, I'd like the audience to get to know you a little bit, um, not just as a professor but as a human being. So one thing I noticed in this book was that in the acknowledgement section, you mention writing part of this book on your parents' farm. Mm-hmm. And um, did you ever consider becoming a full-time farmer um, at any point, or were you dead set on being a Bible scholar from from day one? Actually, none of the above. (laughs) So I never planned to stay on the farm, but I also had never envisioned as a child becoming a Bible professor. I I had no conception that it was a job that you could do, in fact. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think um, as a child what I saw people doing around me was being teachers or nurses. Um, As a college student, I started exploring some other fields, but um, right after college, I ended up in the Middle East for a couple of years and I was doing a lot of Bible studies, both for myself in the land and thinking about how that influences the geography, the space, the history influences the way that we read scripture. And then also leading Bible studies for others. and got really intrigued by it all um, and wanted to do more with it. So ended up, yeah, pursuing a path that I never thought I would, um, (laughs) becoming a professor. Um, I do miss the farm though. I have to say I miss the wide open spaces and having no one around you and just you and the corn and the soybeans. Mm -hmm. And is it, is it like uh, any animals on the farm, like cows or anything or just? No, to the great disappointment of my childhood, my dad is just a grain farmer. (laughs) And so we only had um, tractors. That was Mm -hmm. the loudest thing we had around. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm sure environmentalists are greatly appreciative if we have any (laughs) listening. (laughs) Of course, as you said, you, um, you moved on eventually to the world world of the Bible and um, you're a 
a prolific contributor to New Testament studies. And I'm just curious to know, um, what book of the New Testament do you find the hardest to understand? Um, and I, I've put in here with the exception of Revelation, because I mean, it's just too obvious an answer. I want something more right. interesting than that. So, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it varies depending on what I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> right now, I've just finished writing the notes for a new study Bible that's coming out. And I've done the notes for the book of Ephesians, which is on the one hand lyrical and beautiful and has fantastic theological exposition. But then it also has um, some very negative depictions of Gentiles that use a lot of language that I hear today in the United States in anti-immigrant rhetoric. And I, a couple of years ago, I had a student in a New Testament class who was an immigrant himself and reflected on how um, that language is very unsettling and upsetting for him to hear because he's heard those words mm -hmm. directed at him um, sort of out and about in society. And then Ephesians also has, of course, the women and husbands, wives and husbands, slaves and slave owners texts that mm -hmm. in some ways reinscribe a lot of the Roman social hierarchy and acts against them as well, acts against the social hierarchy as well. But it's hard to hold those two in tension with each other and see what are we meant to do with a text like this? So I'd have to say right now, just because it's been on my mind, Ephesians is a more difficult than you might think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how someone's background can cause a, a text that seems harmless to most people to be problematic. Um, yes. You know, sometimes I think about, you know, Palestinian Christians who, when they get to the Psalms and uh, there's all the ones about Israel being like uh, triumphant in war and everything. Right. So, and um, my last uh, little fun question is that um, if you had to debate one of the following heretics from history, um, who would you be most confident of proving wrong and why? And I have four options here. We have first Marcion, and he believed, of course, that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament were different gods, uh, you know, the big bad God and the <laughs> good God. Or then in next we have Pelagius, who believed in works righteousness. And then we have C. Arius, who um, basically didn't believe in the deity of Christ. And then D, we have Joseph Smith. He kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in those, but of course he was... <laughs> The founder of Mormonism. So who would you be most confident of proving wrong out of those four? Marcion. I think I could totally take him down. Um, my work as a biblical scholar has always been about the interconnections between the Old and New Testament and how the New Testament authors present themselves as continuing the story of Israel. They use language and imagery from the Old Testament that was describing God of Jesus. Um, so I think as a New Testament scholar, I'd have to say Marcion was absolutely wrong. <laughs> there was no chance that he could get away with, um, particularly the way he tried to limit the New Testament canon down to just the few texts that supported him. <laughs> I think mm. I could beat him over the head with the full New Testament. And in fairness, I, I think do that though. I'm not a violent person. <laughs> in fairness, I think we all kind of can tend to do that where we just in our head canon, it's just the the bits of the new testament we like yes. that we put in it yes <laughs> but um yeah yeah well that's that's all that's part of the fun part of being christian isn't it you have to accepting it all that's the, mm -hmm. the great mm -hmm. thing yeah, yeah you have to deal with the diversity and the different perspectives and 
statements that you maybe don't agree with yourself or maybe want to push back against, but they're there and we have to hold them together somehow. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And um, we'll, uh, we'll get on to talking about your book. And I suppose this, the first thing that stands out in the title of your book, of course, has a hashtag in it, um, Mm -hmm. Church 2. And um, for those in the audience who might be non non Twitterites, people who don't use this um, social media platform, what would you explain? What what is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Church Two hashtag um, had its origins in the fall of 2017. So thinking back to the fall of 2017 it seems so long ago at this mm-hmm. point in time, but that was um, the year that the New York Times published um, a long article detailing 30 years of allegations against Harvey Weinstein and the um, allegations of abuse and sexual misconduct that he had committed. Um, That article spurred the Me Too movement. So that might be something that people would be more familiar with. The Me Too hashtag um, was used by actors, by wait staff, by hotel workers, by office workers, by pedestrians, <laughs> even just to share their consistent experiences of harassment, of abuse, of assault, um, even of rape. Um, mm-hmm. Slowly, as that hashtag grew, as the movement expanded, Christians started sharing their stories as well. So women and also some men who had experiences of unwanted comments on their bodies in church or unwanted touching um, to the extent as well of assault and rape and in church contexts, um, they started sharing their stories and they attached the hashtag church to building on the me too movement that is already in existence. Um, yeah. So the allegations, if you, you don't have to be on Twitter to see some of these stories or to read some of these stories, you can just search church too. And you get, um, I find it a bit overwhelming, honestly, with the stories of how pastors, youth leaders, Sunday school teachers, fellow congregants have misused the Christian community and have um, have engaged in sexual sexual misconduct and violations of the trust that we should have within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing to say here is. There's a range of churches and parachurch organizations that have been implicated. So it's not the problem of just one church, but it is a very widespread problem. And I think having the church to hashtag that people across the world, around the world can use really helps us see the extent of the problem and make it visible. Mm -hmm. And you, of course, mentioned some of examples of this in your um, in your book. It's good that you have like stories in your book, you know. Because sometimes we need to we need to feel angry, don't we? We do. Um, yes, yeah. I think that righteous anger is um, that's actually part of Ephesians. We were talking about earlier. Be mm. angry. <laughs> there is a prophetic reason to be angry at injustices like these, um, and that can that anger, I hope, can really fuel change um, mm-hmm. in the way that we. We shape the church and the way we react to these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be like the biggest, um, would there be like a biggest story in the past years since this came out in regards to the church? That, um, or is it just like lots of different ones? You From know? my perspective, it's lots of small stories adding up. Um, there have been some that have been 
And there are some um, really key important leaders of churches who have been who have faced allegations, very credible allegations. So I think, for instance, of um, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church in the Chicago area um, in the United States. Um, he had a history of misconduct and he ended up eventually resigning from his position and the church has um, is not the same church anymore, for sure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a result of those, those allegations. Uh, but that story is, it's not unique. So there are so many. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the other one that came to mind just as you were speaking there was the Ravi Zacharias case. As well. yes. That was, that was yeah. a huge one too. Yeah. yeah. Since this movement started, um, have we seen improvements in how the church has handled issues of abuse um, as well as theological improvements in how the church understands gender? Um, do you think? I think so. Yeah. I think that it has been slow. So one part of the, um, the church to movement has been not only sharing the experiences of assault or abuse, but also sharing how church communities have responded. And often it has not been great responses. So I think mm-hmm. protecting the institution becomes a priority. We don't want people to critique the church. Um, and so we protect the people who have been accused of sexual misconduct at the, there is a word there that I wanted to use, but I can't think of it <laughs> at the expense of the victims, right? So we, um, churches have engaged in victim blaming. Um, they have said, oh, you misled this person by the clothes you wore or by mm-hmm. being alone with this person. It's your fault. Um, and that is deeply troubling as well. Um, we shouldn't be responding that way. Um, but I think that that's changed as particularly as more and more people have shared their stories and we've gotten a sense of just how common this is, how shockingly common this is. Um, churches have been more willing over time to listen to the stories of survivors and victims of assault, um, to believe them and to take action. And so we see pastors who have extensive authority in their communities losing that authority and being removed from pastoral leadership. Um, We see as well, churches are developing new policies and procedures, both for protecting the vulnerable in their communities and also for making sure that allegations are heard and responded to well. That was a big news with Hillsong, wasn't it, recently? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think the Southern Baptist Convention as well, um, they went through a lengthy process of listening to victims and survivors reporting on these experiences and making changes in the church to ensure that it wouldn't happen again. So, yeah, so there, there is help out there. There's definitely hope that we are taking this seriously and changing the way that we approach these issues within the church. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been a large literary response to it as well. So I think your book is kind of, I mentally interpret it along the same lines of the recent books that came out from like Beth Allison Barr or Mm -hmm. um, Christina uh, I will butcher her last name so I won't (laughs) the one the one who wrote Jesus and John Wayne um, yeah Dume is the way she pronounces it right yes Um, but yeah it's and of course those um, those those books are I think part of the part of the same response Mm -hmm. very much and one thing, one thing about those those authors is that they would, um, you know, proudly identify as uh, 
feminists, you know, Christian feminists, and they would consider that to be an important part of their identity. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this of um, should Christians identify as feminists? Because, mm. because some would argue that the term Christian is sufficient. You know, it's it's unnecessary mm-hmm. to add more isms to our identity. Yeah, so I have mixed feelings here. Yes and no. <laughs> um, I think yes, in the sense that the essential heart of feminism is saying all people are equal. We have equality with each other. Um, that is a message that is part of the Bible as well. And so in that sense, I would say, well, we don't need to add something else to Christian because the idea of equality is already there. I'm thinking, for instance, of Galatians 3.28, in Christ mm-hmm. Jesus, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. There is no slave or free. You are all one in Christ. Um, there is a basic assumption there that in Christ we share the same identity and therefore we have equality and mutuality unity within the community. Um, So from that perspective, we don't really need to add anything to Christian because the ideas are already there, but I don't think that they've always been heard well or um, expressed well in the church. So maybe in some cases we do need that extra term to help us remember the equality that is at the heart of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, kind of, uh, I kind of interpret the answer as I don't really know, but like, you know, you can see both sides sort of. Yeah. 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 I get that too. You know, I, I, I would feel weird identifying myself as a feminist, you know, mm-hmm. but your book, um, one of the things it shows, um, very convincingly, um, is that traditional perspectives on women, uh, can create abusive environments. What do you think about the the opposite extreme? Um, and I suppose this is something kind of we associate with kind of the radical the radical feminism, which maybe makes right. us reluctant to identify with that. Um, yes. To what extent yeah. do you think you know the sexual revolution is contributing negatively to the experiences of women in the church? I absolutely think it is. I think in some ways I do want to say the sexual revolution um, by the way that it identified more positive views of sex and sexuality. I think those are good things. And I think they're good for men and for women. I think it does allow us to have healthier perspectives on sexuality. Um, But I also think there are a lot of problems that have developed as a result of the sexual revolution. Um, I would say there's been an increased sexualization of women, for instance, since Mm -hmm. the sexual revolution. So see it in advertising, in the movies, in music and TV shows, even in clothing, right? So when you go shopping for clothing for little girls, it's already sexualized. You think, I don't want this for my nieces. Um, I want, you know, they're, they're kids. They shouldn't be forced into the sexual identity so young. Um, all of that really increases the objectification of women. So just as much as I would say one of the problems with some traditional teachings in the church have also objectified and sexualized women. I think the sexual revolution has done the same thing, but in different ways. Um, I think that it's increased pressure as well for experimenting with sex from a pretty young age, maybe before people are really ready to handle that. Um, it's been all of those factors add up to, um, and detrimental problems for women's self-image, for self-confidence. I think it makes consent and the concept of consent more murky. Um, 
in problematic ways. And, and of course, the problem of objectifying women means that the sexual revolution has also ended up making women objects of male desire, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, okay, but not always okay. We shouldn't yeah. always be looking at women as objects of desire. Um, it challenges women's own bodily integrity in problematic ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's helpful for you to put that point across because you know at, at least someone at least someone like can think when they're reading your book okay this person has like a radical feminist <laughs> agenda or something you know um, but um, so I, I appreciate that and um, of course maybe we'll spend some time on on the other big topic of your book which is of course the story of the Samaritan woman in John four. Uh, someone might wonder, how do you get from this very serious and very real topic of mm-hmm. sexual abuse in the church to the story of the Samaritan woman? Um, and, and it's, of course, very logical, as it turns out. You know, your point is that when we exegete certain texts, we often bring our problematic assumptions about gender and sexuality with us. And we read them into the biblical stories and by default, certain potentially dangerous ideas get canonized, so to speak. And you're examining this story and its interpretation through history as a, as a textbook example of that. You know, I might, uh, I might just insert a, a recording at this point of me just reading out. It is a very long passage, but I think it will be important for the audience, you know, to have it fresh on their mind while we're discussing it. Well, hi guys, I suppose this is when the Patrick of the future steps in because the Patrick of the past was too lazy to read out the whole passage. Shame on him. Okay, well, I will read John 4 and I'll be reading from the New Jerusalem Bible as I am just hip like that. Um, okay, but it's an interesting translation, so I think it um, is, is going to be interesting to listen to. So let me just read from verse 1 of chapter 4. When Jesus heard that the Pharisees had found out that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though in fact it was his disciples who baptized, not Jesus himself, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. On the way he came to the Samaritan town called Sychar, near the land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired by the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me something to drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. How is it that you ask me, a Samaritan, for something to drink? Jews, of course, do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus replied to her, If you only knew what God is offering and who it is that is saying to you, Give me something to drink. You would have been the one to ask, and he would have given you living water. You have no bucket, sir, she answered, and the well is deep. How do you get this living water? Are you a greater man than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself with his sons and his cattle? Jesus replied, Whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but no one who drinks the water that I shall give will ever be thirsty again. The water that I shall give will become a spring of water within, welling up for eternal life. Sir, said the woman, give me some of that water, so that I may never be thirsty or come here again to draw water. Go and call your husband, said Jesus to her, 
and come back here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right to say, I have no husband. For although you have had five, the one you now have is not your husband. You spoke the truth there. I see you are a prophet, sir, said the woman. Our father is worshipped on this mountain, though you say that Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Jesus said, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. But the hour is coming, indeed, is already here, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That is the kind of worshipper the Father seeks. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, that is Christ, is coming, and when he comes he will explain everything. Jesus said, That is who I am, I who speak to you. At this point his disciples returned and were surprised to find him speaking to a woman, though none of them asked, What do you want from her? or What are you talking to her about? The woman put down her water jar and hurried back to the town to tell the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything I have done. Could this be the Christ? This brought people out of the town, and they made their way towards him. Meanwhile the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, do have something to eat. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has someone brought him food? But Jesus said, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me, and to complete his work. Do you not have a saying, Four months and then the harvest? Will I tell you, look around you, look at the fields. Already they are white, ready for harvest. Already the reaper is being paid his wages. Already he is bringing in the grain for eternal life, so that sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the proverb holds true, One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap, a harvest you have not laboured for, others have laboured for it, and you have come into the rewards of their labour. Many Samaritans of that town believed in him on the strength of the woman's words of testimony. He told me everything I have done. So when the Samaritans came up to him, they begged him to stay with them. He stayed for two days, and many more came to believe on the strength of the words he spoke to them. And they said to the woman, now we believe no longer because of what you told us. We have heard him ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. At this point in the podcast, they'll have heard me reading it out. And um, could you briefly share an example of an interpretation of the Samaritan woman story from history that you discuss? And I'd, perhaps the one that frustrated you the most. I'd be mm -hmm. curious to know that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I would say... John Calvin frustrates me the most because I think that he takes such a negative depiction of the Samaritan woman and he's had an outsized influence on how the church has interpreted the story since. So before John Calvin, uh, certainly it's always been the case from the earliest interpretation of the story onwards that the woman is accused of um, sexual sin, right? She is an adulterer, she's a prostitute, um, she is a sinner. That is always part of the interpretation of the story. 
Um, but earlier interpreters also said, but she has a good conversation with Jesus. She's a theologian. She's an evangelist in her community. So they recognize some of the ambiguity and the tensions that could be there in the woman. But John Calvin is just like a character assassination of the Samaritan woman. Um, he accuses her of immorality. She's a disobedient wife. She commits adultery. So her husbands have to divorce her. And then she turns to prostitution. Um, and then that critique of her sexuality spills over into critique of everything else the woman does in this story. So Calvin accuses her of being rude to Jesus. He says that she, he, she deliberately misunderstands Jesus. She mocks Jesus. Um, at the end of the story, after the woman's conversion, when Jesus convicts her of her sin, Calvin goes on to say, well, she shouldn't have been speaking in her community about Jesus because she didn't know anything. She's just an ignorant woman and women's words are untrustworthy. So she's only a trumpet or a bell, he says, to alert people to Jesus' presence. So he's not only critiquing her um, her marital history, he's also completely silencing her and denying her any real participation in this conversation with Jesus or in her ministry to her fellow villagers. Um, and after wow. Calvin, interpreters basically follow right along and continue to accuse the woman of utter sin, utter depravity, um, <laughs> and limit her her role or her influence in the story i think you know in the uh up there and at wherever you know john calvin is john calvin's spirit is now you know he's looking down and saying i think i regret that one yeah <laughs> um no just like my background um i'm a i'm a reformed presbyterian so of course mm -hmm. a lot of calvinism in my in my yes. background and i I do, I do, I do have a great deal of respect for him, but I cannot deny that he's a shockingly <laughs> misogynistic interpretation. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, many beautiful things to say, but with respect to women, I wish I could have a conversation with him. Mm. There's also the other thing he did, didn't he, when he, um, he was concerned how in Mark, it's the women who have to tell the disciples. And so he said, and I think I actually read this in your book, possibly, she, they, Jesus might as well have sent a donkey to uh, mm -hmm. to tell him, which is, yes, right. is insane, <laughs> absolutely insane. Uh, yeah. But that wasn't that interpretation that annoyed me the most when reading your book. It was actually Tertullian for me, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, not least because it seemed to me to lean disturbingly close to. I'm not sure whether Gnosticism is the right word either. That or some sort of hyperplatonism, sort of. Um, could could you briefly outline his view and comment on where do you think it may have been influenced by some sort of Gnostic heresies mm -hmm. that were going around or something like that? Yeah, so, well, first of all, I'd have to say Tertullian was definitely not a Gnostic. He actually wrote a whole book against Gnosticism, so he would definitely separate himself from that. But I think what you're picking up on there is the way that both Tertullian and Gnostic theology, Gnostic understandings, reflect the larger context of the Greco-Roman world. And that dualism of the mind or the spirit contrasted with the body or the flesh is fundamental there. Um, and that certainly, that would be true within Gnosticism, but it's also Tertullian separate from Gnosticism holding the same cultural perspectives. So for Tertullian, there's this idea, um, he draws a lot on Stoic thought, actually. Um, 
this, which was a common cultural conception as well by the time of Tertullian and the late second, early third century, this idea that um, you should control your bodily urges, your emotions, your passions with the power of your mind, with your reason, with a strong spirit. Um, so that spills over into concepts of gender. So the mind, the reason are masculine and the body, the flesh, the passions and emotions are feminine. And since you're to control your body with your mind, then the mind, the masculine um, understanding of the mind becomes associated with power, with discipline, with masculinity in general, and the body, the flesh, the emotions, the passions get associated with weakness and femininity in general. And so Tertullian comes up with this idea then that men are strong. They can exercise authority over themselves and over others. Women are weak. They are unable to exercise self-control or discipline. So they need to be controlled by men who have the power to do that. Um, and then for the Samaritan woman that for Tertullian um, comes out in the danger of sexuality <laughs> that uh, having sexual intercourse, even in the context of a legitimate marriage, it weakens you because you're giving into your bodily urges and passions and desires and pleasures. And that's bad, of course. <laughs> and so Tertullian really wanted to identify not just adultery as sin, uh, but also say that even within uh, legitimate marriage, sexual intercourse is verging on sin. Um, and that's coming back to his mind versus body dualism. Um, and then because he's associated the flesh with weakness and womanliness, then women became a source of temptation for the men to overcome. Um, and that idea has really, even though we are 2000 years post-Tertullian, that idea we just can't seem to get away from. Yeah, yeah. And I think the best way you sum up this in your book is with the quote, bodies, physical pleasure, and sexual intercourse were all subject to a certain amount of suspicion on the part of theologians, preachers, and monks. The suspicion spilled over to women more generally. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's um, Tertullian is kind of the, the poster boy for, yes. for that. Um, yes. And of course, some of the language you use there makes me curious because some New Testament scholars would argue that Tertullian's perspective on gender and sexuality is actually present in, in the New mm -hmm. Testament in seed form. And they would point to passages like First Corinthians seven. You know, it's it's good for a for a man or a woman not to marry. And I, you know, as Christians, we agree with that. Like it's it's fine. You know, yeah. but but was there some other sort of uh, worldview underneath that for Paul? That's kind of the thought. Or um, I think in also in like First Corinthians sixteen thirteen, he says, "Act like men." Yes. <laughs> and. Um, or in the book of Revelation, you know, you have the images of the, the whore of Babylon, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. So is this in the New Testament in seed form or, or is that, you know, maybe us, maybe they were just misinterpreting the New Testament? Mm. No, I think so. Even though Tertullian was a couple hundred years after Paul, they're part of the same Mediterranean environment and the ideas that we find in Tertullian were already present in Paul's own day, um, particularly, well, and the entire New Testament, um, the ideas of 
gender of masculinity being about control and about self-discipline and strength and power, um, an interesting element in sort of the gender discourse of the New Testament worlds was that there wasn't necessarily a gender binary. It was more of a continuum. You were more or less masculine. So a woman could be masculine-ish <laughs> by exercising self-control or by being honorable in her behavior. Um, the people who could not be masculine were slaves. So enslaved people, because they had no power over themselves, they had no rights, legal rights, or uh, authority over their own persons. They were sort of the opposite of honorable masculinity. So that worldview, although it's not necessarily sort of propagated in the New Testament, it is definitely lurking behind the New Testament. It's the world in which the New Testament authors, the early Christians would have would have lived, how they would have understood um, their own identities and the identities of others. Um, and I would say that some of that is definitely present in 1 Corinthians 7. So especially when we start 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's quoting what the Corinthians have written to him about, that it's it's good, right? If a man doesn't touch a woman, that's right. <laughs> Surely, Paul. Um, but interestingly, Paul doesn't agree with that, right? He says, well, actually, it's good for a man and woman in marriage to have sex. So he's, um, maybe sex positive isn't the right term, but he's definitely in support of in marriage, it's okay to have sex. That is not sinful. So he would disagree with Tertullian there. Um, but he does then go on to say, but you're right, it's better not to get married at all. Um, and Jesus says some things as well that seem to point in the direction of sort of asceticism, celibacy as a way of life. So he says, you know, it's better not to marry. You should be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. Um, so that message is there, but I don't think it's, quite getting at the same thing as a Tertullian-like asceticism is. It's not about controlling your body, but it's about the apocalyptic urgency of the moment. You should be completely concentrated on bringing the kingdom of God. So why bother getting married, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, That's just a waste of time. Um, it's honestly, it's been a dream of mine as a New Testament scholar that one day someone's going to invite me to read scripture at their wedding and they'll say, you can pick whatever you want and I'll get to read first Corinthians seven at a wedding. <laughs> I hope one day to realize my dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And then with the, the gender concept in general. So using that idea of masculinity as a goal, um, the masculine strength, I think is what Paul's getting at there in first Corinthians 16. Um, but at the same time, um, there are so many texts scattered through the whole New Testament that really undermine the whole system of gender. And I'm thinking here of Jesus when um, the disciples come to him and say, you know, which of us is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Or when James and John come up and say, hey, Jesus, when we get to Jerusalem and you're reigning on your throne, can we sit at your right and left hand? Jesus answers them to say, um, the one who wants to be first has to be last. And if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the slave of all. And of course, the slave is the opposite of honorable masculinity. So it's undermining the whole system of masculine masculinization in, in the cultural context. And mm. Paul picks that up as well. Paul describes Jesus as a slave in Philippians 2. He calls himself the slave of Christ, and he calls on the people of the church to um, 
serve each other and put others ahead of themselves. So I think there, although we see some reflections of sort of the common cultural language of the time, we also see some challenges, pretty serious challenges. Mm. When it comes to um, the the Samaritan woman, you also give your own um, interpretation of the story, which which helps to kind of contextualize and maybe give a different interpretation a helpful way of getting at this to begin with is um what role did romance play in marriages in the world of the samaritan woman and um, how does this change the way we look at the story so romance was definitely not a prerequisite for marriage in the roman world Um, and this goes as well for jews and samaritans as part of this wider roman world Um, marriage was almost always arranged by family members. So the two people who are getting married themselves may not have a lot of um, say in who their spouse will be. Um, Marriage was for economic and social benefits. So you would make an alliance with someone, with a family who could bring um, more resources to your own family. So women in this sense have a really important role of helping their own families by allying with another family in the community. And that could bring resources of social status, could be resources for business relationships or land ownership, um, could be many different ways that these marriages would be arranged for the benefit of both of the families involved. Mm -hmm. Um, It would certainly be nice if the two spouses would grow to love each other. So love was not, you know, absent from marriages necessarily, but it was not the purpose of a marriage. You weren't getting married in order to live with your best friend and share a family together and create new life together. That was not what marriage in the ancient world was about. It was about community Um, engagement. It was about Mm. making arrangements that would be good for the family. Mm. Um, Interestingly, the best references to romantic love in the Roman world, they're all about extramarital relationships. So (laughs) yes, indeed. (laughs) Mm. There's also the song of songs. I'm just thinking, you know, that that Mm -hmm. certainly seems to have, well, of course it has a romantic side to it, (laughs) Yes, but um, I suppose that's a that's kind of a, a very presumably that's a, that those are people of very high stat, status right. in the story so yeah. you know it's not it's not really that you can just apply that to to any person in the world I suppose that's what you'd say would it be yeah definitely yeah, yeah. so there were some people who could have been lucky enough to marry for love but most people married for very um very prosaic considerations of how can I survive in a really harsh world where Mm -hmm. you need as many resources as you can. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So when people today read the Samaritan woman's story and, you know, I reviewed so many sermons and Bible studies and reflections on the Samaritan woman written by modern Christians. Um, And I would hear things like, well, she was living with her boyfriend and she was looking for love in all the wrong places, or she kept seeking out these romantic relationships to fill the gaping need in her soul. And I think, wow, we are really reading that through our modern understandings of marriage as relational and as being centered on romantic love. And that is foreign to the Samaritan woman's world. Mm -hmm. Now with that, clarifying picture that you've begun begun to develop there 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 are a couple of you know things that that um someone might respond with and um 
I was discussing this, um, your thesis with one of my friends. You'll be happy. You'll be happy to know. Yeah, excellent. Um, and he comes from one of a more a more traditionalist perspective. And he was saying like, well, why does Jesus decide to bring up the woman's marriage history at all? Mm-hmm. Like, what's what's the point of this? And mm-hmm. so what would you what would you say to that? Mm-hmm. I think there are a few reasons we could see operating together here. I think number one, marriage was incredibly important for women's social location, right? So women would have connected to the society around them through husbands, through, through their own marital relationships. So um, it's just recognizing a fact of life for a woman to say, this is an important part of her life is her own marital history. Um, I think number two, it reflects a theme in the gospel of John that Jesus will often start conversation with someone and reveal something about them that he could not be expected to know. So one of the clearest examples is when Nathaniel shows up and he's been brought along by some of the other followers to see who this Jesus is. And as he walks up, Jesus says, ah, behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel says, you don't know me. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, before um, they found you. I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel immediately says, oh, my Lord and my God, right? you're the Messiah. This is clear. <laughs> right. So Jesus revealing something about Nathaniel has made Nathaniel believe something about Jesus. And the exact same thing happens in the story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus says, oh, you've been married five times and now you are living with a man who is not your legal husband. And she says, oh, you're a prophet here. Let me ask you the burning question of my day. So her response, it gets at exactly what Jesus is doing there. He's talking about her marriage history, which he could have no way of knowing. It is a very unusual marital history um, so that she will know who he is, that he's a prophet and has insight and can be someone who would be an authority to speak to. And then there's another reason, I think. Um, So my third reason Marriage is a theme in chapters two to four of John's gospel. We start with the marriage at Cana and the wine jar episode. Um, Mm -hmm. Then at the end of chapter three, John the Baptist is talking about how he's just the best man, the attendant of the bridegroom, but the bridegroom is coming. And then we go straight to Jesus, who's on a long walk and sits down by a well And if you're reading in terms of biblical history, you're thinking, oh, wedding bells are ringing, right? Because that's where you pick up a wife. You go to the village well, and the woman who offers you water is going to be your wife. We know that story from Genesis and from Exodus as well. Moses picked up his wife at a well. Um, So all of those factors are raising the sort of specter of a wedding, Jesus is going to marry this woman, right? But then the story through the rest of John 4 just totally destroys our expectations. So first we find out she's a Samaritan. So, well, Jesus can't marry her because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And then we find out that she won't offer him water, right? She refuses to offer him water. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that expectation is broken. And then we find out she's not even available. She's already in a relationship. She's had many marriages. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we get this expectation of marriage raised and then it's stimmied um, within the story. And we find out it's been about something else all along. Mm. Yeah. I think those literary explanations are very interesting. And I think that'll give my friends some, some things to chew yeah. on anyway. Um, even if he doesn't agree, he can mm-hmm. at least 
hear those. Thanks. And um, I suppose another, I think an elephant in the room very mm-hmm. much is the question of, well, she's living with another person, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it might just be worth you explaining just a little bit about the practice of cohabitation. Yes. Just because that really was a big, um, a big insight for me, you know, mm-hmm. for helping me understand, you know, that, look, she's not necessarily a sinner, you know, just yeah, because she's going yeah. yeah, we have different expectations for marriage today, um, following Christian theology through the years. Um, but in the first century, the right to get married was actually pretty strictly limited. Um, so not everybody had the right to marry at all. And then there were limitations on who you could marry and, uh, legal formal marriage. So for instance, um, Roman soldiers were not allowed to marry. Um, A Roman citizen could not marry a non-citizen. An enslaved person did not have the legal right to marry. Um, Within Judaism and presumably also within the Samaritan community, um, and I say presumably because the Samaritan community, we just don't know very much about from the first century. We think they were pretty much like the Jewish community followed similar practices, but we can't say for sure. Um, But within Judaism, for sure, uh, a priest could not marry a woman from a non-priestly family in a legal formal marriage. So in all of these cases, um, the workaround was to have Uh, informal marriage by cohabitation. So you live together, you are committed to each other, uh, you share household income, uh, you might have children together. The difference is that you are not legally married, and so you don't have all of the legal protections that would exist for a normal formal marriage. Sorry, not a normal marriage, a formal marriage. Um, So for women, this could be really problematic, the reason we know about so many of these cases is actually from women who were abandoned by Roman soldiers and suddenly had no way to provide for themselves or their children who were the children of these soldiers. And so they often tried to go to court to sue for money back from the soldiers, but the judges repeatedly say soldiers can't marry. So you're not married. So you have no rights on this man. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So fun times in the ancient world. Um, (laughs) But, but These different informal relationships of cohabitation were not considered immoral, not within Roman society, and as far as we can tell, not within Jewish society or Samaritan society either. Uh, It's a could be a difficult situation for a woman, right? You might find yourself alone. Perhaps your fifth husband has died. You don't have another source of income. You need a household to be attached to. So perhaps an informal relationship by cohabitation was was the way that you could protect yourselves and any children you might have. Um, It could also be a way for a family to get advantages socially. So say there's a Roman government official locally who cannot legally marry a non-citizen, but if you had a relationship of cohabitation with that person, your family could get advantages from that access to services that you might otherwise lack. So it could be a really good thing for the family to have such a relationship. Yeah. It's such a, such a remarkably different world, isn't it? It is. It really is. Yes. Wow. Wow. And of course it's, it's been great for you to bring up all these, you know, examples because it really helps recontextualize the story, but I, one thing that really that occurred to me, kind of the the, the devil's advocate voice in my head mm-hmm. while I was listening to your book, is 
when it comes to all these facts, I was wondering if the church fathers would have had access to this information um, through common knowledge, you know, just what they knew about the world from just their everyday experience. And and if if not, if they didn't, you know, can we fault them and later interpreters like like your buddy John Calvin <laughs> right. for, for their interpretations? Yeah. So take this in two parts. First, did the earliest interpreters know these realities of marriage? They should have. <laughs> this was a common common practices from before the first century until well into the fifth, sixth century, even these were just common marital practices of the time. And so they should have known about them. Um, and in fact, we see with Tertullian, um, he's arguing, he uses the Samaritan woman specifically as an example in his argument against remarriage. So he thought marriage should be a once for life event. Um, if your spouse dies, you do not get remarried and look at this terrible woman, this Samaritan woman who had all of these marriages. And luckily that was before she met Jesus. So she's okay. But for you, if you remarry after the death of a spouse, there's no chance for you. Um, so Tertullian definitely knew about the situations that people could find themselves in, that they might be remarrying after a divorce or after um, after the death of a spouse. Um, I would say, though, that Tertullian, John Chrysostom, they are all influenced by the developing Christian ideas um, about marriage, and they really bring that to bear on their interpretation of the story. So they may know that women are getting married multiple times, that there are different forms of marriage that exist in the world that people might find themselves in. But they still want to critique the Samaritan woman because they don't want women in their congregations following her example, right? And so you can't um, sort of explain her situation away. You have to um, critique her as a sexual sinner so that you can keep that emphasis on sexual sin in your own congregation, right? So I think that they are reading the story through their own lenses to a certain extent. Um, I would say for sure, John Calvin or later interpreters, they're not gonna have the same access to the materials that help us understand the complexities of marriage of different relationships in the Samaritan woman's world. But I'd still say that later interpreters and earlier interpreters for that matter, we can still read the story well. And if we're reading the story without making assumptions that, well, if a woman's been married five times and is living with a man who's not her husband, she clearly must be a sinner and Jesus is convicting her of her sin. If we don't start from that perspective, if we just come to the text and read what it says, there's no mention of sin in this whole chapter. Mm -hmm. Jesus never says sin. He never says forgiveness. Um, and that's unusual in John's gospel, right? Because Jesus talks about sin a lot in John's gospel, and he is not shy of convicting people of sin. Um, so the fact that the words for sin or forgiveness do not occur in John 4 should make us pause a bit, right? And stop ourselves before we start accusing the woman of sin. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. the fact that G the woman... Um, after Jesus says, oh, you've been married five times, the man you have now is not your husband. Her response is not, oh no, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. Her response is, you're a prophet. Here's an important question I have for you since you have proved that you have this special knowledge. And mm -hmm. that should also help us see that there, there are other ways to read this story. Mm -hmm. That was the, 
probably actually the most um, convincing piece of your thesis mm-hmm. for me was when, you know, I was I was reading uh, reading a bit of it and then I, you know, set it down for a while and I just opened the passage in John and I was just, just read through it and I was and I was like, oh yeah, sin doesn't actually, <laughs> actually appear here. That's that's very remarkable, you know, just yeah. uh, how you just read those things in kind of just yeah. create this um Christian midrash in your in your yes. mind, sort of. Yeah. Yes. Um yes. yeah, and I, I I love the way you um I think a great way that you sum up in the um in the book is the woman was certainly unlucky in the sheer number of marital households she had been a part of. But as we'll see, unlucky is not the same as sinful. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yes. And and it is, you know, um, it does seem like a lot of husbands. I mean, undoubtedly, like that is yes. that is a strange part of it. And there's all sorts of, you know, speculative reasons outside of the, well, she was just a prostitute as to why it was so many. Yeah. Where do you, where do you think you land on that? You know? Yeah, it's, I certainly think it's possible that she faced the deaths of multiple husbands. Life in the ancient world was hard. And if you were injured or ill uh, or, um, I mean, violence happened pretty regularly, right? When the Romans are militarily occupying your land. So there could be reasons that she had several husbands die. Um, it's also the case that women tended to get married at a much younger age than men did. And so marrying someone who is older would already sort of bring about the specter of death um, for the older party partner in the relationship. Um, It's possible that some of her marriages were never completed, right? So we have that story in Matthew chapter one, where Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married, but they haven't yet started cohabiting. So their marriage isn't complete. Um, And Joseph wants to divorce Mary. So maybe the Samaritan woman had a similar experience of having the um, engagement as a serious legal binding situation where the two people could already be considered spouses, but then it ended before they actually finished the marriage. That would be another Mm. possibility. Divorce was very common across the Roman world as well for a variety of reasons. Maybe there's a better alliance for your household if you divorce this spouse and marry someone else, for instance. Um, Yeah, so it's hard to imagine this woman's life. I mean, this is really, we're getting an insight into a very difficult life. Um, but, but I don't think that we have to read in sin to understand her situation. Yes. Yes. Getting a bit reflective on, uh, your book and what you wanted to, how you wanted to help the church. Cause I, I imagine that's why you wrote it. You know, you wanted, yes, indeed. if a pastor wanted to, to preach on this passage, um, what would you want to be at the forefront of his or her? Um, you know, but we have, we have both complementarians and egalitarians listening yeah. to this podcast and I'm not going to um, show my, um, where I land on that here, but um, uh, what would you want to be at the forefront of the message? I would argue that in John's gospel, the Samaritan woman is an ideal disciple. She's someone who talks to Jesus, listens to Jesus, questions Jesus, and through her conversation, she comes to believe in Jesus and accept him as Messiah. And then she immediately responds by running to her neighbors and saying, 
I have heard the Messiah speak. He's at our village well, come out and meet him. Um, and they believe because of her word, as well as because of Jesus' word. So I think John is giving us this woman as a model to follow. And that's for women and for men. So she's not just a model for women to follow. I think too often in the church, we preach women's stories to women. So we might hear them on Mother's Day, <laughs> but the rest of the year, we're really focusing in on men's stories because somehow the stories of men in the Bible have application to men and women. But we've got this idea in our heads that if it's a story about a woman, then it only matters for women. And I don't think that's true here. I think that John really wants us to see the Samaritan woman as a model for discipleship. This is a pattern for us to follow, to seek understanding for ourselves and to share that understanding with others. So I'd hope that that's what pastors would focus on in this story. Um, Mm -hmm. It's the longest conversation in the entire gospel of John, and it's happening between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. So that's important. That brings her, um, makes her a really remarkable character in John's gospel. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that off the top of my head. I would have thought it would be Nicodemus. I mean, obviously, it's mostly Jesus who's talking about that. Exactly. Yeah, story, but, Nicodemus um, has just a couple sentences to reply, but the Samaritan yeah. woman stays an active partner all the way through. So. Mm. And of course, we've been talking about this a bit in the conversation. One of the things you note about the story is the way it's been interpreted draws out kind of the problematic way that people in church history have, you know, um, called out um women you know and victim blaming or Mm -hmm. sort of um obsessing over female sexual sin that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um but you know as as christians we still you know think that you know sexual ethics is an important thing Mm -hmm. you know um and and so do you think there's still a place for church leaders to call out that you know non-abusive sexual sin sex outside of marriage or Mm -hmm. pornography or Mm-hmm. Other other things like that, you know, where you're not having someone being abused, but you're still maybe not, you know, following the teachings of Jesus. So, yeah, yeah. So is there still a place for this and how how should we go about it if if so? I definitely think so. Um, and I would say in many of those situations, maybe all situations of sexual sin, um, even if someone is not being abused, someone's still being taken advantage of either in terms of an image that you're looking at or, um, or a person you're looking at with lust, right? Um, mm-hmm. there's, there are imbalances there. You're breaking relationships with different people, um, by engaging in these activities in these sins. And I definitely think that we should be, should be calling those out and critiquing them and calling people to be, figuring out what it means to love God and love your neighbor with respect to how we engage in sex, right? (laughs) And -hmm. I think that that's a message that maybe we haven't done as good a job at in the church. We're really good at identifying sin, but not always at thinking more positively, how do we love God and love our neighbors with respect to sexuality? Um, One thing that I would say a biblical message that I have found really important in terms of sexual ethics um, comes up in things that Jesus tells the disciples. It's also part of 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Um, don't take advantage of someone else for your own benefit, right? It's an pretty basic message, but I think it's one that has a lot of power with respect to human sexuality. Don't take advantage of someone else for your own benefit. And included in that, um, going back to this idea of the stumbling block, 
women are often told that they're the stumbling blocks because of the way they dress or the way they act in a social situation. You are causing your Christian brother to sin. You are um, you are causing them to stumble. Um, but when we go back and look at what how Jesus uses that language, he says the stumbling block is your own eye, your own hand, your own foot, right? You are the stumbling block by the way that you are looking at or... Um, or taking advantage of someone else. So don't do that, right? Take care of mm-hmm. yourself first. Uh, I think that message also needs to be more loudly preached in the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I greatly appreciate that, you know? Um, and um, th- those are, of course, all my questions that I have here, but it's been amazing to hear your your wisdom and everything. And um all that uh, all you've had to say about this passage, I suppose. Maybe in closing, are there any um, there are there any books on the on the topics we've we've discussed today that you would um, that you'd recommend to listeners mm-hmm. if they want to they want to delve more into not just I suppose you know the history of um, the history and, and but also you know the the ethics of, of what we've mm-hmm. been talking about as well. Yeah, one book that I found incredibly helpful as I was thinking through the Church 2 movement and its consequences for the church is um, Ruth Everhart, The Me Too Reckoning. And she is a pastor herself, and she's both had experiences um, of sexual misconduct in the churches that she's been part of. So she's really faced these issues. And during the writing of her book, she carried out um, a number of interviews with different people who had experienced abuse or assault in church contexts. It is a harrowing book because you're being confronted with things that have happened in the church that we would really prefer not to have happened, right? (laughs) Um, Of these, the ways that sexual sin has crept into our communities, but she also offers a lot of helpful guidance for how to heal from sexual trauma and also how to make the church a better space where vulnerable people are protected um, and where the church as a whole is part of that protection is making sure that, um, that we are thinking about our bodies and sexuality in healthy, godly ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I really appreciated her book. Okay. Okay. Well, that's one that the audience can go and get. So um, again, really appreciate you coming on and uh, thanks for, thanks for your time with us. Thank you so much. I've appreciated being here.